passing of a great American hero. Really? Old Glory, Texas. Did you hear about this? Funeral services will be held Wednesday for Carl B. Bradley. Do you know who he is or was? No, I'm asking you. He knows because he read the piece. You don't know who Carl B. Bradley? He was the Marlboro Cowboy. You remember the Marlboro Man? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, unsung heroes like that, uh, you know, that, that, that really, uh, in a way, they are, uh, I think people in commercials today, and I, you know, I do quite a few commercials, as you probably know, Joe, people in commercials today have become more ubiquitous, more well-known, really, than people who are appearing in the official movies because more people go see commercials. No, that's a fact. Uh, not many people, you know, out of, out of the population go to see the movies much anymore. And, and, and the commercials are on. You know, they see you all the time, all the time. In fact, you know that I'm stopped on the street probably three or four times a week. Guys will come up to me and say, uh, hey. And I'll, say, I'll look at them and I know what's going to come. You know, they say, hey. And I'll say, yes. Uh, hey, I want to take a greyhound out to Beckley, West Virginia. Uh, where? <laughs> in other words, you see, I do the the Greyhound commercials, you know, on TV, and so you, you can you can have your own television show across the country for years, uh, and not be as well known as one commercial you do. Did you know that? I mean, Jane, I would say the Jane Withers today is more well known, more more recognized by people than the days when she was a top flight movie star. Would you say that? You know, the Lady Plumber, <laughs> and and. Uh, and I suspect that more people have seen Henry Fonda since he does the GAF commercials than, uh, than when he did... Oh, yeah. No, I'm not talking about the name being well-known. You're confusing the name with real fame. Fame is to be instantly recognized when you walk down the street. They don't even know your name. They just say, Hey, there's the guy in the Sangria wine commercial. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing because... Uh, uh, it, it, this now now you how many times did you see the Marlboro Man? I mean millions, billboards, television commercials all over, and nobody knew his name. Well, his name was Carl B. Bradley, the Marlboro Cowboy. He drowned Monday with his horse. He did it. You know, it was a real. Uh, he was a true Marlboro Man. You know, he wasn't. He, most of these people that play these things are really actors or or they're uh, uh, models. Uh, you'll see a guy riding on a ship. You, know, you see this guy, you know, you, you, he's not a ship captain. He's some guy they got out of central casting, see. And, uh, but this guy was a real cowboy. And he died in Old Glory, Texas. Uh, he died Monday. And uh, he, he, in fact, he, uh, how he died, he was 33. He came from Knox City, Texas. Has served, he had served as wagon boss for the 6666 Ranch, the 46's Ranch, at Guthrie, Texas, for years, including the period that the Marlboro commercials were filmed on the ranch there. He was the wagon boss, uh, funeral services and so forth. And uh, it says he was trying to break in a new horse when the horse slipped on the edge of a stock tank, you know, the tank where they drank out of. And uh, the horse slipped, and the horse fell into the tank along with the rider, of course, and they figured that apparently the horse kicked him on the way down and, you know, into the tank, and that was it. It was the end of the ball game for him. But that, the, now there's the passing of, a, of an unsung American hero. 
I mean, he's the true Marlboro man. And he, you know, <laughs> and, and I've always felt, you know, that, that there's all kinds of unofficial things which really mold our society much more than, uh, than the official things. So uh, every day, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a book review that'll say, um, this reader will never be the same after reading uh, um, Myrtle J. Uh, Panter Down's newest searing novel of love and sex. You know, they go on and, and uh, they say, yes, uh, this is a, a book that uh, is going to change our entire attitude to it. And it never does. Never does. You know, they may sell 8,000 copies of the novel, and this is a country of two, what is it, 200 million now. And, uh, and so what is really influential is often not talked about as being influential in a country. I think... More people would recognize the Marlboro Man if he walked down 6th Avenue wearing his cowboy suit, you know, his actual suit that he wore in the commercials, than would recognize any one of a dozen Broadway stars. Well, for example, how many people go to Broadway plays out of the general population? See, I'm talking about real fame versus uh, column fame, which is not the same thing. Column fame is, you know, who, who it's the, the people that Earl Wilson is continually writing about that the average person doesn't even know one that what they ever did <laughs> to, uh, would never know them if they saw them on, on the uh, on the street. And yet, uh, I, I doubt whether the uh, the lady plumber can walk down the street uh, more than thirty seconds without fifteen people asking her if she's got a wrench with because they're having trouble with their sink. Uh, people tend to take it literally, incidentally, uh, to commercials they probably believe that that lady plumber really does work as a plumber. Because I have been asked by people, actually asked by people, whether or not I have a Greyhound schedule with me, and they want to know whether or not there is a bus from Chicago, say, to Indianapolis on Wednesdays around noon. <laughs> actually, they, they somehow think you work for the company, and it's like you're, you're, uh, you're involved in this thing. And I, I, uh, I just, uh, there are other people uh, that, that are known completely through commercials. For example, uh, I'll give you examples now. Uh, there is a guy, uh, all right, uh, how many times have you seen the Preparation H Man? You haven't? I don't think you watch television, so you're, you're not part of it then, Joe, since you don't, if you've never seen Preparation H commercials, it's something very wrong with your TV set. You haven't seen that. Well, what the hell do you watch on TV? It's on night and day. <laughs> I mean, these Preparation H commercials, I don't know how you can miss them. Well, then you don't see them. So, so you're not a good judge. And, and uh, for the, No, I'm amazed that you, you've never seen that. I'm just, just amazed. I mean, that's like somebody saying, what, New York Times, what's that? And you say, well, it's a newspaper. Oh, I never saw that. I never heard of that. Yeah, I mean, it'd be very difficult for me to assume to understand that you've never seen a Preparation H come because these are very ubiquitous. They're on all the time. Uh, uh, another one uh, that, you, that you see constantly uh, that, that uh, is, is always there and uh, that, that always the same guy is doing them. Uh, the Pathmark uh, grocery commercials. Okay. Uh, you've seen that one. Uh, now we're making contact with you. Nobody knows who he is, hardly. <laughs> they couldn't rec but they'd see it. They recognize him on the street, you know. And and uh, this is a uh, this is uh, real fame, you know. It, it it really is. And I uh, I think that fame. For example, do you know that that uh, that there is a list uh, that was compiled in the early '60s by one of the great uh, 
book uh, organization, literary organizations, and they 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 nominated and sort of enshrined the 100 books, the 100 American books that have actually affected American life, that have molded American life. Now, a book can mold a uh, life uh, without even you reading it. In other words, the, the, uh, the attitude of the book becomes so ubiquitous that people read this thing and they begin to copy these, the, the characters in the, this particular book until ultimately uh, it, it has created a great... Well, for example, Uncle Tom's Cabin is a classic example of a book that really did affect uh, American society. Uh, because Uncle Tom, you know, you probably you never read it. That isn't the question. But it did uh, cause a great uh, upheaval, or at least it was instrumental in a great... It was one of the things that led to the Civil War, you know. Uh, <laughs> and the Civil War has changed American culture. And it also changed your culture, Joe, whether you ever read the book or not. Uh, but these, these are the influential books. And you'll never guess who one of the great influential authors was. And yet, many of the influential authors, the truly influential authors, just like the commercials, are never recognized by the literary world, really, as being great writers. It's, the, it's what they've done that uh, transcends. Uh, for example, I suspect that the guy who, for years, drew uh, Flash Gordon was read by more people than quite probably all the American writers combined up to that period. Now, that you probably don't even know his name. Uh, Popeye, the, the guy that did Popeye, who created Popeye, uh, he con he contributed words to the language, and yet very few people know his name. He was the guy that created... Well, I'll tell you some of the words that he put in the American language. You're curious? Jeep. Did you know that the word Jeep was created by him? Didn't know that, did you? He also created the word goon. You know, labor, Alice the Goon and all that? Uh, he created the, yeah, a, a Wimpy Burger. <laughs> this all came out of this one guy's head, and, and he really was influential. Now, never, and, 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 and your wildest imagination is anybody at, a, at an official NYU-type conference on communications ever going to mention Popeye as having much to do with American culture. And yet, in reality, it had a vast amount of, of uh, impact on the American culture. Certainly Walt Disney did, uh, in, in a very real way. Now, who do you think, uh, I, I, and just by coincidence, I had been reading this whole list, you know, this whole thing uh, about the, the influential characters, and here, here along comes the Marlboro Man, who's just passed from the scene. And uh, he, he influenced, uh, you know, not, not necessarily, you didn't go out and buy the cigarettes, but his picture was everywhere. You saw him. And, and many people would have a fantasy about this life. You know, here is this guy in the sunset, always sitting there uh, over a fire. You remember those with the with the tattoo on his hand, and uh, he became a universal picture. And uh, he he wasn't famous as a person. You couldn't if he went in and checked in a motel, everybody wouldn't come crowding around unless they knew who it was. And for the minute they saw him down in the lobby, they'd say, "My God, he looks just like the Marlboro Man." And it would turn out, of course, it was. Now, uh, what's the matter? Do you have trouble? Uh, but, but, you know, I, I, uh, I, I'm fascinated by American culture, and I'm fascinated by the thing, I think, by the year 2000, I, I think it's a little early for it yet, 
we're going to recognize another kind of culture than we recognize that it's already beginning to happen. Uh, you know, our education for years is based has was based on English and, in fact, European literature. Uh, so when you went to school, you had to read Ivanhoe. Uh, when you went to school, you read Silas Marner. When you went to school, you, you would read uh, endlessly. You would, uh, you would translate Julius Caesar. You'd read this. You'd read uh, uh, things like, uh, uh, occasionally you'd read Jane Austen. These are all the things you actually read. But the, the, the amount of the interest that has been shown in what could be called American popular literature is tiny. Uh, by the academic world, and yet it's slowly beginning. Like the other day, I was in a an old bookshop, a, a used bookshop down on uh, down on Fourth Street, and uh, I'm down down in the in the uh, just they had stacks of stuff there. Thing. And just by coincidence, a couple of days before, I had been reading this list that had been compiled and uh, the great influential literature of the past 250 years in America. And what happened? I came across a copy of one of those books piled up in a great big pile of stuff. And I bought it, in case you're curious, I bought it for eight cents. <laughs> and it, here it is. Uh, by the way, this is WOR New York. And before we go any further, let's do a Mountain Valley spot. Let's see, it says uh, Mountain Valley. This is water. Uh, and anybody who lives in uh, New York these days knows that the stuff that comes out of the tap is not necessarily the best drink you've had in the last 24 hours. And uh, Mountain Valley's mellow taste and its uh, satisfying effect have made it the first, whatever that is, have made it the first water to merit continuous use for over 100 years. Uh, it's the only water to gain popularity across the nation. From Hot Springs, Arkansas, America's leading health resort, Mountain Valley water should be exactly right for you. You know, you sit down and drink a couple of gallons of water and get all watered up. For a free folder and price list to have Mountain Valley Water delivered to you, mail a card to WOR here and just write on it, Water. All right? Okay? Uh, here, now, here's the book that I'm talking about. You want to actually hear Now, this is... You've all heard of Horatio Alger, haven't you? Yeah, everybody talks of He's a real Horatio Alger story. In fact, the author's name has actually become part of our language. They'll refer to it as a Horatio Alger, he's a Horatio Alger hero. He's a, he's a true Horatio Alger story, meaning uh, that he really worked up from the bottom and made it. It's the American dream. And a lot of people say, uh, people who are students of our culture say that, that uh, Alger, Horatio Alger, probably more than any one single author, affected people back in the late 1800s and early 1900s and created a whole mythology and an actuality, too, that you could stop being a, a carpenter or, let's say, just a little guy that works at a, at a, at a uh, you know, as a clerk in a store. You could rise above that and become famous and rich and make it. Now, this was not often in literature before that. And the thing that made it so effective, of course, was that all this, all this literature was read by kids at the very time when you're attitudes are being formed. Horatio Alger wrote kid stories. And very few people know much about Horatio Alger himself. But, but here I came across one of the most important, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's an actual first edition of it. Eight cents, and it's called Risen from the Ranks. Horatio Alger, Jr. 
And there is, there's the actual book. And when was it published? Well, I'll open it up. It was published in 1908. And inside it says, uh, here's the, the title page. It says, Risen from the Ranks or Harry Walton's Success by Horatio Alger, author of Strong and Steady, Try and Trust, Bound to Rise, Shifting for Himself, Brave and Bold, Slow and Sure, Wait and Hope. All these great books. But the, the classic is Risen from the Ranks. <laughs> I mean, even the title of it is great. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some actual Horatio Alger. For those of you who have never... See, I have never read any of this. This is, this is, you know, this is in my grandfather's time reading this stuff, and 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 I never actually read any Horatio Alger. Did you ever, Jerry? You have actually read one. I have never in my life until I got this thing here, and I'm going to read some of it to you so you know what Horatio Alger really was like, and why he is one of the great influential authors in the America. In fact, he was read all over the world after a while because it began to make people. Uh, see that the, that they could by work was he really epitomized the work ethic, and here it is, chapter one. The name of the book, Risen from the Ranks, chapter one, entitled Harry Walton. Here's the first line. I am sorry to part with you, Harry," said Professor Henderson. "You have been a very satisfactory and efficient assistant, and I shall miss you." "Thank you, sir," said Harry. I've tried to be faithful to your interests. You have been. I've had perfect confidence in you, and this has relieved me of a great deal of anxiety. It would have been very easy for one in your position to cheat me out of a considerable sum of money. Well, it was no credit to me to resist such a temptation as that, said Harry. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that, but it shows your inexperience nevertheless. Money is a great tempter nowadays. That great line, money is a... Nothing's changed. Money is a great tempter nowadays. Consider how many breaches of trust we read of daily in confidential positions. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it, gang? Even now. I have every reason to believe that my assistant last winter purloined at the least $100, but I was unable to prove it. And it may be the same next winter. Can't I induce you to change your resolution? I'll advance your pay. Well, thank you, Professor Henderson, said Harry. I appreciate your offer, even if I don't accept it, but I've made up my mind to learn the printing business. You, have, you are to enter the office of the Centerville Gazette, I believe? Asked the professor. Yes, sir. How much pay will you get? Well, sir, I shall receive my board the first month, and for the next six months have agreed to take $2 a week and board. Well, that won't pay your expenses. It must, said Harry firmly. Well, you must have laid up some money with me, haven't you? Yes, sir. I have $50 in my pocketbook besides having some $80 at home. Now, that's, going, that's doing well, but you won't be able to lay up anything for the next year. Perhaps not in money, but I shall be gaining the knowledge of a good trade. Well, perhaps you're right. I don't fancy being a magician myself, but I'm too old to change. I like moving around and making a good living for my family. Besides, I contribute to the innocent amusement of the public, and I earn my money fairly. The professor is a magician, see. I agree with you, sir, said Harry. I think yours is a useful employment, but it would not suit everybody. Ever since I read the life of Benjamin Franklin, I have wanted to be a printer. 
Well, it's an excellent business. When you have a paper of your own, you can give your old friend Professor Henderson an occasional puff. What do you say? I shall be glad to do that, said Harry, smiling. But I shall have to wait some time first. How old are you now, Harry? Sixteen. Then you may qualify yourself for an editor in five or six years. I advise you to try it at any rate. The editor in America is a man of real influence. Well, I do look forward to it, said Harry seriously. I should not be satisfied to remain a journeyman all my life, nor even half of it. I sympathize with your ambition, Harry, said the professor. Let me hear from you occasionally. I shall be very glad to write you, sir. Well, I see the stage is at the door, and I must bid you goodbye. When you have a vacation, Mrs. Henderson and myself will be glad to receive a visit from you. Goodbye, Harry. And now here's a comment from Mr. Alger himself. He said, Those who have read Bound to Rise and are thus familiar with Harry Walton's early history will lead no explanation of the preceding conversation. Harry Walton was the eldest son of a poor New Hampshire farmer who found great difficulty in wresting from his few sterile acres a living for his family. Nearly a year before, he had lost his only cow by a prevalent disease and being without money was compelled to buy another from Squire Green, a rich but mean neighbor, on a six-month note on very unfavorable terms. As it required great money to make both ends meet, there was no possible chance of him being able to meet the note at maturity. Besides, Mr. Walton was to forfeit $10 if he did not have the principal. The long involved discussion of Harry Walton's early life. Now, that's a, pre that's a premise that was done in books of this type, that it was very common for an author to plug previous books. It would be the same thing as if today, uh, uh, say, in one of my books, let's, let's just say in, in, uh, in uh, The Ferrari in the Bedroom, which is my current book, I would somewhere in the line say, for those of you who have read uh, uh, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters, which is available, by the way, at your Doubleday bookstore, uh, we would suggest that you reread Chapter 7 because the, the, the following uh, thing relates to that, and you'll have to know. <laughs> And, and, but nevertheless, here is, here is uh, Risen from the Ranks by Horatio Alger. That's probably the first time any of you, many of you, have ever actually heard Horatio Alger's stuff being performed or, or read. He writes an almost exclusively, I noticed one interesting thing, he writes almost exclusively in dialogue. That his, He would have been a natural playwright, actually, had he, he written uh, plays, because... Uh, it's almost in, uh, almost totally written in dialogue. I notice page after page of nothing but discussion between people, comments, short comments. Anyway, Harry Walton rises to become the editor, and uh, he winds up owning the paper and the whole thing. In fact, it shows on the cover, it shows apparently Harry Walton. It's a very faint picture, you see it? And Harry Walton is playing golf. Now, in 1908, Golf was a game played only by the very rich and elegant people. It was not a game for Lee Trevino. And so the idea that Harry was playing golf on the cover of this thing, wearing a white golf cap, he really made it. <laughs> I mean, it would be like today if you show a picture of your hero sitting on the fantail of a 60-foot Bertram yacht. Uh, that, uh, you'd know he's done pretty well, right? Well, just the, the idea of him being on the, uh, on the cover here playing golf was enough to... You know, to make many a guy, uh, oh, I got to read that. I got to see how he did it. You know, risen from the ranks. So there's now. You want to you want to hear uh, another uh, 
Now, here's a totally different kind of kid story. I was down there buying all this stuff. I, 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 I collect kids' books, more or less. You know, I get a kick out of just picking up books that were written. They used to write novels for kids. Today, they don't do that anymore. Uh, now, uh, the only kids that get books written for them are very little kids. You know, things like Benny the Beaver, uh, that kind of stuff, and Dr. Seuss. But when you're any when you're older than that, it's very difficult to find anything written for, say, a 15-year-old kid. Uh, actually, a novel written for a kid. That's that's a that's a rare thing. And and here here's one now. I saw this one down there. I had heard rumors of this series, and and uh, and it's a quite rare series. It's Papillot. Have you ever heard of Papillot? Well, Papillot. You will not hear of Papillot because Papillot was funny and and things that are funny tend not to be taken seriously and actually they tend to wear better than the stuff which is taken seriously and Papillot was written by a guy named Leo Edwards and uh, this is called Papillot's Pedigreed Pickles <laughs> it's got a pretty good title it's Papillot's and it's a novel it's not it's not a little thin book it's a regular you know it looks like a regular novel see in fact I'll tell you how many pages it's got regular novel pages it's got uh, 241 pages, 243, 244 pages. So, it's a, you know, it's a regular novel length. And it says, Papillot's Pedigree Pickles by Leo Edwards, author of the Papillot books, published by Grosset and Dunlap, publishers of New York. And this was written in 1927. And uh, here's the first title, first, first chapter. Papillot's Pedigree Pickles, Chapter 1. And this chapter is entitled Poppy's pickle parlor. When Papillot jumps into a thing, he usually knows where he's going to land, for he's a pretty smart boy for his age, as you probably will agree with me if you've read the earlier books that I've written about him. But believe me, by the way, it's written believe me, but believe me, his wits sure were tangled up the day he got that pickle parlor idea, or at least that's what I told him when he first sprung his brilliant little scheme on me. In arguing with him to bring him down to earth, as it were, I tried to convince him that a pickle parlor was about as sensible as a barber shop for hairless poodles. No one, I said, referring to the people who bought groceries, would buy their sugar and other truck in one store and then walk a block to buy their pickles in a pickle store. That would be just extra work for them. They will, says he, sticking to his scheme. If we have better pickles to sell them than they can buy their average grocery store, they will. Oh, come on, pickles is pickles says I. Well, like almost everything else, he says, as solemn and as wise as an old owl, there's a big difference in pickles. Oh, yeah, I says, some are sweet and some are sour. No, I mean, says he, that of pickles of a kind, some are much better than others. Now, you take your own mother's pickles, for example. See, this was supposed to be written by a kid about another kid, you remember. The author is a kid. Did you follow this? And, and, and it's kind of great, you know, to have, have a kid write a book about another kid is what the whole premise of the Papillot books apparently is. He says, take your own mother's pickles, for example. You must have noticed that they've got a better taste than Boughton pickles. And that largely explains why a great many women prefer to make their own pickles. They want better pickles than they can buy. So how easy for us to build up our new business if we get the right kind of pickles to sell? I gave him a sad look. Poppy, I sighed, you're too much. What do you mean? As long as you're a kid, I advised, as a further effort to pull him down to earth, why don't you be a kid? This peanut parlor stuff is out of your line, kid. 
didn't say anything about a peanut parlor. Well, a pickle parlor is just as crazy. You can't make it work. Pickles are pickles. And the place to buy them is in the grocery store. Jerry, if you wanted to buy a good, cheap stove poker, what store would you go to? Well, to the stove poker parlor, says I, tickled over my own smartness. Come on, be serious. Well, I replied generously. I might try the ten-cent store. But what are you talking about? A stove poker is hardware. So if your har- if your argument holds good, shouldn't you go to a hardware store? Uh-huh. Tra-la-la, says I. Isn't it a beautiful day? <laughs> you know, it's not bad dialogue, actually. The point is, he says, that people will buy hardware in a novelty store, or for that matter, anything of any kind of a store, if you make it an object for them to do so, if you convince them they should buy it there. Well, I said, yawning, running a store is a man's job, so come on, let's cut it out. Let's move out. But he was as unmoved as though he were the hill of Gibraltar itself, or whatever you call it. (laughs) Of course, he reflected, referring to our suggested partnership. Of course, it'll be a 50-50 proposition. Seeing that it was useless to argue with him further, I resigned myself to my fate as his pickle partner. I have a hunch, says I, that it's going to be a whole lot worse than that. A pickle partner? Do you realize we're going to be the laugh of the town? Well, Poppy answered with a smart look on his face. The Wright brothers were laughed at when they tried to fly. And Edison was laughed at when he started walking around with that talking machine and that light bulb. The easiest thing some people can do is to ridicule any new idea that comes up. But we should worry how much the Tutter people in this town laugh. That's the name of their town, Tutter. (laughs) The Tutter people laugh at us. To that point, in fact, I'd rather have them laugh than ignore us. For to be ridiculed is a kind of recognition. (laughs) Help, I said, holding my head. Help. Get the dictionary. What do you mean by ridicule? (laughs) Well, that set Poppy to laughing. And if you could have seen him then, as I saw him, you would better understand why I like him so well. With all of his wise talk, there wasn't a kid in Tutter, where we live, who has any more real kid fun in him than this long-legged, long-headed guy that is a friend of mine. And that he has big ideas is, of course, a credit to him. As he says, half the fun of being a kid is getting ready early in the game to be a man. Now, you take the stilt factory. Do you remember the stilt factory that I told you about in my book, Poppy Ott's seven-league stilts? Now, that was an idea, let me tell you. Imagine two boys starting a real, honest-to-goodness stilt factory with a smokestack on the roof and everything. When the brainstorm first struck my ambitious chum, I declared flat-footed that we couldn't do it. But old Longhead said we had to do it. Already, he had two big stilt orders in his pocket. (laughs) They're stilt factory. uh, Then he plugs about five books, Poppy Ott and the Stuttering Parrot, few other great uh, books but this he's got he's got real real humor now now do you want to hear hear the line there where he goes in and starts his pickle factory saying he says we'd look we're going to look cute he ends the, the, the chapter by saying we're going to look cute trying to run a pickle parlor without any pickles and the next uh, chapter is our silent partner this is where they actually got the pickles <laughs> and he calls this lady mrs clayton a pickle specialist and uh, she, she, she's the greatest pickle canner in town. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's a crazy idea. And it's kind of funny. These kids start in a pickle parlor to sell pickles. 
And, and uh, this is the story of what happens when they when they opened up their business to sell pickles. And this lady is is their is their uh, silent partner. She makes the pickles. His description. He says, Mrs. Clayton, you may not realize it, Mrs. Clayton. He says, Ma, it, it, uh, the very fact that you have made this purchase proves that you are a lover of good pickles. I say good pickles. For as a pickle specialist, I can see that you bought the best pickles that the store has got. Poppy is working in a store after, after, after school, and this lady came in and bought pickles, and she bought these expensive pickles. He says, you're a pickle specialist. He says, because I'm in the pickle business myself is no reason why I should run down anybody else's pickles. I mean, they try hard. On the other hand, I have a right to uphold the superior quality of my own pickles. And it is of such pickles that I'm going to make good your loss. Not store pickles, Mrs. Clayton, as we usually accept the term, but homemade elegant pickles, of which the more you eat, the more you want. Pickles that you never tire of. Pickles with the lasting, lingering taste. Pickles with a skin you love to touch. Pickles. The orator soared like a rooster flopping over a fence. Pickles that please, but never pucker. A wonderful treat is in store for you, and once you have been initiated into the dinnertime joys of our perfect pickles, I hope you'll remember me. Not as a blundering boy who bumped into you by accident to the loss of your bottle of store pickles, but as the hand of providence that led you into the light. Poppy's Pickle Parlor. Easy to remember, isn't it? If you'll say it over two or three times, you'll never forget it. Say it. Poppy's Pickle Parlor. Which is all to the point, Mrs. Clayton, that whenever you are in the need of pickles, the place to buy them if you want the absolutely best. Remember our slogan? Pickles that please but never pucker. Buy them at Poppy's Pickle Parlor, the home of perfect pickles. <laughs> now, that's, a, that's an imaginative story. A guy, a guy starts out, the kid is... <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's the the, the the writer, see, he says, well, he says, boy, I never felt so foolish in all my life after all that talk. He says, he's a smart kid, all right, but he was spreading the gab too promiscuously. Enough people would start to laugh at us, I figured, without him making a monkey of himself and me, too, in public. The first thing you know, Poppy, I said in a soft voice, when we'd escaped from the laughing crowd, they're going to be locking you up in a padded cell, and they're going to be putting me in right after you. Well, what's the matter, Jerry? He grinned. Don't you like my lingo? You can't keep it up and get away with it. What's well, good advertising, he modestly bragged. But what's the use, I said, of letting on that we have a pickle parlor when we don't even have one yet? You're going around talking about this pickle parlor like as if it exists. A business is a business, he says, from the time it's organized... And when we discussed it, we organized it, right? So we got a business. We've been organized for better than 30 minutes. <laughs> now, that's a kid with real chutzpah. <laughs> but the, no, 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 there, this, is, this is the kind of stuff you pick up, you know, if, if you look around. Uh, if, if you're curious about this one, this was 11 cents. And the reason it was 11 cents is the cover is better than the one on the algae. Now, now do you want to hear another type of kid book? Now, this is, this is, a, this is one that everybody has heard of again. Uh, you find this interesting? These kid books. Listen to this one. How many times have you ever heard of the Bobsy Twins? Well, the Bobsy Twins uh, is another legendary pair of characters. In fact, they've even entered the language. Like you hear uh, once in a while, you hear somebody use the expression "boy." He, he, you know, he, he that 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 guy really reminds me of one of the Bobsy Twins. You know, well, what were the Bobsy Twins? Well, I found a copy of this thing. 
Uh, and this is called The Bobsy Twins. And it's this one is dedicated, by the way. It's got a... It's, somebody has written a... Uh, it was a gift. It says, To Jill. Hey, you're cute, it says. The Bobsy Twins. And the name, of the, the name of this novel is Or Merry Days, Indoors and Out. Now, this was written by another great American author who wrote stuff for kids, a lady by the name of Laura Lee Hope. And this was published by the Goldsmith Publishing Company of America, <laughs> of Chicago, rather. And, and here, here the, the first chapter is called The Bobsy Twins at Home. This is, again, like a regular novel. It's a novel-sized book. And it says, The Bobsy Twins at Home, Chapter 1. Now, it's probably the first time you've ever actually heard the Bobsy Twins really being read. So we're bringing you culture tonight. It's the kind of stuff you're just not going to hear this side of BAI. It says, The Bobsy Twins at Home. The Bobsy Twins were very busy that morning. They were all seated around the dining room table making houses and furnishing them. The houses were being made out of pasteboard shoe boxes and had square holes cut in them for doors and other long holes for windows and had pasteboard chairs and tables and bits of dress goods for carpets and rugs and bits of tissue paper stuck up to the windows for lace curtains. Three of the houses were long and low, but Bert had placed his box on one end and divided it into five stories. And Flossie said it looked exactly like a department store in New York. There were four of the twins. Now that sounds funny, doesn't it? Four twins. But you see, there were two sets. Bert and Nan, age eight, and I'll ask you a question. What were the other twins called? Fred and Flossie, age four. <laughs> so this, these are, this is a, a novel for, for younger kids, obviously, than Papillot. Papillot is, is for teenage male types. Nan was a tall, slender girl with dark face and red cheeks. Her eyes were a deep brown, and so were the curls that clustered around her head. Bert was indeed a twin, not only because he was the same age as Nan, but because he looked so very much like her. To be sure, he looked like a boy while she looked like a girl, but he had the same dark complexion, the same brown eyes and hair, and his voice was very much the same, only stronger. Freddie and Flossie were just the opposite of their larger brother and sister. Each was short and stout with a fair, round face, light blue eyes, and fluffy golden hair. Sometimes Papa Bobsey called Flossie uh, his little fat fairy, which always made her laugh. But Freddie didn't want to be called a fairy, so his papa called him a fat fireman, which pleased him very much and made him run around the house shouting, Fire! <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> now, this is really treacle, as they say. This is, this is pure treacle. But uh, it's all about the adventure of these kids out on the farm with an ice boat and uh, so forth. And uh, this... Now, I, I, I don't know, you know. It's funny about how you hear about these things. I had never read any Bobsy Twins. I, I did not come from a family where, where kid books were very big, except that you went down to the, to, the, to the library and got them out. There was one set of books that, as a kid, I used to read all the time. I'd go down to the library. Now, I, I know that, that I, I really feel that... that that kids are divided really basically into two groups. People who read only because they make them read in school. That's it. And for the rest of their lives, they never look upon reading as a thing that you do for pleasure. It's a thing you have to do. It's, a, it's like arithmetic or something. They just don't read. And then there's the other group of people who read for pleasure. A very d distinctly different group. And, and it doesn't even often have to do with IQ or intelligence. It, it's, it's something else. It's difficult to say how it happens. But from the time I was a little kid, going to the library was a great thing for me. And I was not an intellectual kid, no way. 
Uh, in fact, <laughs> I was a dedicated third baseman. But uh, I used to go to the library all the time, and, and I got hung on reading these the, a, a special set of books. Did you ever hear of a, of a group of kids' stories called... Uh, and they had a whole... I, I read every Oz book I could lay my hands on when I was a little kid. I, I, I read uh, right from the beginning. You know, most people know about The Land of Oz and Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, but I'll bet a lot of people don't know of books called Tick-Tock of Oz. Uh, the Pumpkinhead, Jack the Pumpkinhead of Oz. All these various, there were about, you know, I don't know how many dozen Oz books, but uh, I read every last one that I could lay my hands on. But there was another series of books I read, and I don't, sometimes now at this point, because nobody ever heard of them, did any of you ever hear of, uh, of the Tom Slade books? Did you ever hear of Roy Blakely? Do these names mean anything to you? Did you ever hear the name Pee Wee Harris? Does that name mean anything to you? Well, for some reason or other, our library had a whole shelf of books about those people. And I read them from left to right. <laughs> Every last book. And uh, they were old books. These, these books somehow, you know, they were in the, in the library. They were old and nobody ever took them out, but they were old. And I read every last one of them. And I even remember the name of the author of one of the sets of books. A guy named Percy Keese Fitzu. <laughs> Strange name. Uh, authors often had three names in those days. Laura Hope Cruz uh, and so forth. But uh, I, uh, I, I think that almost all of us in one way or another have been affected by that. I wonder how many kids were actually, hello, actually affected by, say, uh, Dr. Seuss. Which is incidentally a, a, a vaguely mad, curiously perverted world where where animals try to steal Christmas, various things like that. You know, these books give you, I think, a basic sense of insecurity. At any minute now, the Grinch is going to show up and and uh, and uh, steal your living room rug uh, for reasons of his own. But the, the 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 actual influential people of our time are rarely talked about as influential. And so the Marlboro Man has passed from the scene. Well, and uh, he he uh, he had his moment in the sun. And in fact, he's even sort of a, a generic term now. People even refer to guys. Oh boy, he's a real Marlboro Man. You've heard the expression, you know. Well, the real one uh, has left the scene now at 33, and he did it in true Marlboro Man fashion, breaking in a new horse. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's going all the way. That's like, if, you know, you heard that John Wayne uh, died in a gunfight in a western town someplace, fighting it out with a guy that just robbed the bank. And bring it up, lives there, lives there. That was another culture night here. Uh, this is WOR New York. Now, you stay tuned for John Wingate and Nightbeat. The program is Nightbeat. I'm John Wingate. Wingate's Nightbeat.
the sound of night. This is John Wingate. Wingate's Nightbeat. Where you, the audience, call in, talk, chat with me, rip off the politicians, and do whatever you want to. Tonight, one of the youngest men ever to run for office in New York City. As a matter of fact, he looks like a teeny bopper. State Assemblyman Stephen Solars, running for Brooklyn Borough President. Later, Herbert Bailey, Vitamin E, your key to a healthy heart. What does vitamin E do for you? Does it help your heart? Can it raise your blood pressure? Does it help your sexual powers? Vitamin E and all the vitamins. Later, from Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Dr. Louise Wenzel, a neurologist who also practices acupuncture. Why can't we get acupuncture here? Does the AMA keep